The global monetary system is undergoing a period of unprecedented uncertainty and instability, but at the same time, there is an incredible amount of innovation, particularly in the form of digital currencies. How might this evolve into the future and could digital currencies serve as a solution to unsound money? Well, joining me to discuss this topic today is Rob Price, who is a macro strategist and economist based in Los Angeles. He spends a lot of time studying and observing digital currencies like Bitcoin. Rob, welcome to Solutions with David Ansara. Great to be here, David. Thank you for having me. Great, Rob. So before we look at the future of money and some of the big uh, possible potential game-changing uh, new currencies that are out there, I think it's also important to understand the nature of money itself and also some of the problems that our monetary system is facing. So, so let's start with the first question, which would be, what is money? Fantastic, David. Yeah, it's great to start the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the beginning there. It really, it lays the foundation for why these, uh, these new technologies are so important. And you know, money is such a, a badly misunderstood uh, concept. At the end of the day, really, it is a technology. You know, we often think about the outcome, but money is a technology. And one way to characterize the whole technology is societies have chosen many things as money throughout history and it tends to be the most tradable good uh it can actually be anything and if you jump straight to the examples you can see how strange and obscure the things can be and then we can kind of characterize what the similarities are and what the, the good forms of money are and the bad forms of money which teases out the uh, the, the principles you know, societies have chosen things as obscure as cigarettes as a form of money or salt, stones, shells, beads. So these things seem quite obscure. But if you think about the context in which they were chosen and the economy and the society and the technology at the time, it starts to, you know, make sense. So for example, I mean, cigarettes, they were chosen by people in concentration camps in the, in the Second World War because, well, they were constrained by the technology available to them, the resources available to them, and cigarettes served a purpose. Uh, and the qualities that we often you know, you look for in, uh, in money is, is for them to be scarce, durable, divisible, and transportable. And if you then take those kind of principles and apply them to the examples that we've used, you can see how in some societies, those might have been good forms of money. As examined, going back to the cigarette example, uh, you know, in that context, those you know, cigarettes were, were scarce, difficult to get hold of. They, they're not particularly durable, but if you keep them in a pack, you know, they last for a reasonable period of time. They're, of course, divisible and they're transportable, right? Uh, and then within these other contexts, something like you know, seashells might have been scarce within that society. Um, so it's important really to understand the, the conceptual framework. Uh, you know, all of these goods end up, they're, they're tradable and they have some degree of qualities over these, uh, these characteristics. And over, over time, you know, societies gravitated towards metals because they're more durable, more divisible. Uh, but of course, they can themselves have cumbersome aspects that can be difficult to transport. They can be difficult to verify. You know how much of you, how much have you got? What weight is it pure? Uh, and that led then to a further technological advancements, uh, where people we we invented coinage, and coinage is probably the last major technological advancement if you think about it with with uh, with money. But you know, at least coinage then allowed uh, easier verifiability of uh, of the money. Um, and more divisibility, but even that in itself, once again, had cumbersome aspects. You know, you've got to transport the coins. Where do you store the coins? Uh, so that led to warehousing of coins uh, and people issuing then those, you know, paper certificates of deposit, uh, which was once again a reasonable uh, innovation. So then you could just carry along, you know, your your paper money, and that's where we got, you know, really paper money from. And that introduced then, though, a lot of human uh, element to the uh, to the situation um, because 
you know, those warehouses could start to issue more paper than actually they had, you know, coins in receipts. And that would, of course, be, you know, cheating the existing holders, uh, the existing depositors. And we might get onto that kind of, you know, detail uh, in a bit. But it just I guess, starts to show you how this human element comes into the, uh, the technology and creates these uh, potential uh, problems. And then thereafter, we, I guess it brought us to the, the era of, uh, of central banking. But I'll, I'll pause there you know, before we get into more detail on the central banking. But yeah, money it tends to be the, the most tradable good in society. And it's, it, it is really helpful to look at the history to understand these principles of scarcity, durability, divisibility, and transportability, rather than just thinking about the outcome of the money that we use today. So Rob, I mean, another way of thinking about currencies is that it's a medium of exchange, it's a store of value, it's a mm -hmm. unit of accounting. And, you know, I think it's very easy to take money for granted, you open your wallet, and there's the money. But underpinning that is also the need for trust and faith in the value of that, that money. And I think what I'd like to do is also just tease out this concept of sound money and understanding what that is how do you know that the money in your wallet is trustworthy is worth the value that you presume it is yeah so i mean with government issued monies they are you know we have legal tender laws that uh you know only a certain currency can be used in a certain jurisdiction so you know by decree uh you know governments ensure a degree of uh, trust in their money, uh, but you know whether that money is sound or not is a you know another matter altogether. And you know a simple uh, description of maybe let me before we, even before we get onto sound money, what is you know what is unsound money? Well, an unsound money is a a money where there is very little constraint on the quantity of new money that is uh, created. So there's very little scarcity in that money. And uh, that really characterizes most of the, you know, monetary and financial systems that exist today, where, uh, you know, governments turn towards unsound money policies, which would be, you know, lowering interest rates, issuing of more debt, whether it's by themselves or encouraging, you know, households and corporates um, to issue debt th themselves, but, you know, using new money as a pretend, as a as a as a supposed solution, I put that inverted commas because I mean, as we'll go into the details, it's not a particularly good solution. But you know, over the short term, it seems to work, right? You print up this money, you use it to appease the problem that you're dealing with, whether it be a social problem, an economic problem, a financial uh, problem, a, a political problem. But there are consequences that come out over time. Uh, and so in a, in a sound money, of course, would be one that is sound, that where the money is actually scarce, where you have uh, greater trust. And the, I guess the, re the really big problem here is that you know, uh, distrust only finds expression over time. You know, it, it, you know, you don't immediately distrust a money because a government has lowered interest rates. The consequences are quite abstracted and they only find expression kind of slowly over time. I mean, obviously it depends how extreme the unsound policy is, but most unsound policies take, you know, stepping stones towards uh, being unsound over time. So we, we don't, you know, it's, it, we don't lose the trust immediately and as a result you know the the government doesn't feel the pinch of our lack of trust uh, very quickly and yeah i mean i think throughout history there have been some very dramatic examples of when uh, trust in money breaks down uh, because of government interventions or other economic conditions weimar germany uh, zimbabwe i think it was in 2008 the hyperinflation crisis so uh, what are some of the drivers of this unsound money? Uh, how, does, how does it come about? How do we get to this point where uh, the soundness of money deteriorates? Yeah, and, and I mean, coming back to your examples, which are great examples, and I brought you, I'm glad you brought those up. I think, you know, it's important for the, the audience to, to note, though, that they, we, everybody's on a you know, continuum, you know, and often when we're trying to explain things, we go explain a concept or an idea, we go to the extreme, which you know, makes sense, going to those extreme hyperinflation scenarios. But all countries are in some degree of continuum 
of how unsound uh, their money is. It's just, you know, at, at the absolute extreme, it's very uh, obvious to, to see. Um, but you asked, you know, how does one kind of uh, get there? Well, it is, you know, by using the types of policies that I've spoken about, where rather than trying to uh, actually face up to a social, economic, political, or financial problem, you think to yourself, okay, well, let me just kind of take the easy solution. Let me try and paper it over with cheap money. That really is the uh, the principle of it. At, at the extreme, what happens is that, I mean, governments are have very little uh, practical financing uh, you know, through tax revenue, and they're actually going directly to the central bank to print up money and use that money to pay for their expenses. But once again, as I said, that's that's in the extreme. All governments are somewhere on this continuum of, you know, using low interest rates to try and create inflation, which makes it easier for governments to repay their rising debts. Uh, which are issued in nominal terms, and inflation helps them to, you know, repay uh, those debts. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're all kind of uh, in in countries that are actually faced by this uh, unsound uh, conundrum, and we all are facing the consequences of the unsound money, even if we don't see it come through in hyperinflation. So, Rob, you mentioned earlier the role that central banks play. So when we're talking about governments, central banks as an institution are obviously playing a critical role in controlling the money supply. Um, but the institution of a central bank is actually quite a new phenomenon. It's really only uh, since the beginning of the 20th century that we've seen central banks emerging. So what role do you see central banks playing in all of this? Yeah, and maybe coming back a little bit to our, our monetary history and linking these together, they, they come together quite nicely. There's, I mean, the major reason offered why uh, central banks were created was to uh, prevent the banking crises that emerged when, you know, you had private banks issuing money because the way that those private banks would be disciplined by the market is that if they if if they issued too many certificates of deposit which as we said was kind of cheating their existing deposit holders eventually that would result in some inflation right because you'd have more paper money relative to actual commodity money and coin and when the market sensed that they would kind of have a bank run on the private bank and that might force them to, you know, go under, which would actually be a good, it would be volatile, but it'd be a good correction mechanism because the bad bank banks would go under and the good banks would, would continue to exist. So central banks came along and they said, okay, well, this is volatile and governments often try to want to try and do this, right? They wanted to kind of reduce uh, volatility. So they said, okay, well, we'll create a lender of last resort to prevent bank runs. That was kind of the initial uh, the reason that they offered. I do think it's important to know that there is actually a potentially another reason. If you, if you look back through the history, and there's a great book to read on this, uh, Lords of Finance by Liquid Ahmed. It's quite, a, it's quite an interesting book. Don't worry, it's not a, a kind of economic textbook. Um, quite, a, quite a thriller of central banking through the years. But he talks about how, um, and he shows quite neatly how, uh, banking became increasingly centralized over many hundreds of years. And actually the key uh, time where it became particularly centralized was around wars. So when governments go to war, they need to finance that war. And it's you, they could, of course, get some tax revenue from people who are willing to pay, but people are only willing to pay so much tax to see their people go to war and send people you know, out to be killed on the, on the battlefields. And so it was easier to rather go to banks and say, okay, well, you get us a loan, uh, you know, the, the population will only see the impact over time through inflation. So we will rather just, you know, use the debt to pay for the war. And it was once, but, but if you're going to all individual private banks, once again, you can say no negotiation that you have to enter into, which is a challenge. So what they did over time is they would give increasingly kind of monopoly rights to certain banks giving bestowing on them certain privileges so that when the time came that they needed to get funding for their wars that uh, they would be able to have that uh, good relationship and uh, listen i'm not saying it's uh, it's the only example i've given kind of the 
the the PC example of of the banking crises. But if you look through history, it's actually very interesting how the centralization of banking did take place, particularly around wars uh, and throughout Europe. That that history is true with the Bank of England, the Bank of France. Um, so anyway, those two reasons, I guess, uh, brought us to this day of uh, of having. Uh, central banking, where they uh, control the monopoly over uh, the issuance of money. So that's the history of central banking and uh, a, a bit of a potted history of money itself. But let's look closer to today. And I think since the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, we've really seen a fundamental disruption in the financial system. And I think what's so striking is just to see how much stimulus has been pumped into global capital markets and just how low interest rates have been kept uh, for so long, whether it's the Federal Reserve in the United States where you are or the ECB in Europe. Uh, What are some of the consequences of this uh, in terms of uh, the way in which uh, we use money today? And, and just also to add on to your question, you said, obviously, the US, the ECB, and if you look at South African interest rates, they actually follow the same correlation as the others. It is slightly higher, but they're also at a, a record low. So, so getting on to the consequences, um, there, there are numerous. And listen, I'll, I'll try and keep it short because you know, we don't want to talk about the consequences forever. But it's really important to note that there are numerous consequences to these unsound uh, monetary systems. The, the, the authorities tell us that the only consequences is, C- is CPI inflation, you know, which you know we we see the CPI index, uh, which actually tends to be reasonably low. But that that is not it's not true that that is the only consequences. There are numerous consequences to this uh, to this um, creation of money, and hopefully conceptually you've already seen that when new money is created, that dilutes the existing shareholders of the money, the existing shareholders of RANDs get diluted when new money is created. And so it benefits the people who get their hands on that new money, right? Uh, so one of the key consequences here is, an, is the unequal consequences, the unequal outcomes that the people who get their hands on the money first get the benefits relative to those who don't. Um, and I, I'm not trying to say that there's kind of a particularly nefarious uh, intention here or trying to make cons- some kind of conspiracy theory whatsoever. It's just a matter of fact that the people get their hands on the money first benefit. And you see the consequences very clearly in the world that we live in today. We've got some of the biggest governments that we've ever seen, right? Because they get their hands on the money first. We've got some of the biggest financial sector that you've ever seen in the history of the world. Once again, the financial sector gets their hands on the money ahead of the rest of the population. And we're also dealing with a lot of inequality in the world today because uh, richer people get access to funding by you know, private bankers and so on. So as I said, I'm not trying to make any sort of conspiracy theory here, and I've got nothing against uh, people becoming wealthy and going after wealth. And I and also don't think that we should target equality as an outcome either. Equality in the world is always going to exist. But the problem here is that we've got a mechanism at the center of a financial system that enhances inequality. Um, so yeah, inequality, bigger governments. Another key consequence is, is, a consequence is weaker economic growth. Because as the economy becomes saturated with debt, the economy actually struggles to function as well as it should. Uh, we're not allocating capital efficiently because the pricing mechanism is incredibly distorted. You know, money starts rushing to all sorts of uh, new fads, which aren't necessarily particularly valuable because of this distortion uh, in the money. And that actually, as I said, impacts economic growth. It impacts job growth. So it impacts, you know, every man on the street. Um, And then I guess the last one is is a little bit more esoteric, but I think it's really important is that I think with it impacts the trust in the economy, right? When you have these price signals that is distorted, when you're living in an unequal world, when you're living in a world with uh, lots of government, with lots of power, but they're not really seeing the results in economic growth, we just live in this world of distrust. And I think people can feel that. Um, And as I said, it's difficult to walk through some of these relationships because they seem quite abstract. But hopefully now that I've kind of walked you through some of them, you can understand how there's actually 
many nefarious consequences, or maybe nefarious is the right word, there are many negative consequences to us and many of the problems that we are dealing with. And we do talk about these problems, but we very rarely talk about that the relationship to the unsound monetary system that we live in. Okay, so there are a lot of negative externalities. There's capital misallocation. There is uh, asset inflation, and all that benefits the existing holders of assets. All right, but you've underscored the importance of scarcity when it comes to uh, a currency or, or, or to money. But there's a new form of digital scarcity that is being offered by new technologies, uh, specifically cryptocurrency. And I know in your writing, you focus a lot on Bitcoin. Could you tell us how these new forms of currency have emerged and what problem they are seeking to solve? Sure. I mean, I think, I guess the first point to note is that people have been trying to create a digital form of money you know, ever since uh, the internet emerged. There's many fascinating quotes of famous economist, you know, Milton Friedman, a very well-known uh, economist. I can't remember exactly the year, I think, you know, in the 80s or the 90s, talking about the, the potential for the creation of a, of a digital money. So people have been working on this uh, idea for many years, and they struggled. It's a very difficult problem to solve. To create digital scarcity is very difficult. If you think about it, you know, in the digital realm, we don't really have scarcity. Everything is kind of abundance. Uh, every, you know, on social media, shopping, uh, phones, electronics, we just have this abundance of information, particularly in the digital realm. You can just create more and more and more. Um, and in fact, many computer scientists became quite fatigued with the idea of creating a digital money. They didn't think that it would ever, ever happen. Uh, but yeah, then in 2008, 2009, Yusoshi Nakamoto um, launched this, you know, this the, was first sent out a white paper to a uh, you know, cypher, cypherpunk um, mailing list and you know, created uh, Bitcoin, which started as a completely you know, hobbyist uh, idea um, on uh, people on this, uh, on this mailing list. But it obviously has grown uh, exponentially over the, uh, the subsequent years. But yeah, they managed to solve this problem of creating digital scarcity. And I would I guess I would describe Bitcoin as, as three things. And we, there's lots of different frameworks to think through it, but maybe to summarize, it is three things. It is one that has solved this digital scarcity problem. It is a digital store of value. And the way to think about it is actually quite similar to something like gold. Uh, the way that gold is difficult to find and difficult to mine. And even the, if gold, you know, the gold price were to increase from where it is today around $1,800, if it were to double, you know, you can't increase supply of gold very easily because you've got to find more mines and mines can only produce so much. So it is a, it is a scarce asset um, and gold functions as a store of value over long periods of time. It holds value. It can be volatile over the short term, but gold does. If you look at the return history, it actually competes with many equity markets, many property markets, and it, it has a, a, a very important role to play in portfolios as a result. But anyway, the point just being that it's a good way if, if one can understand gold, and unfortunately, many traditional investors don't have a good understanding of gold, but Anyway, I mean, and then we can get onto the consequences for Bitcoin too, because it gives it gives us a good lens into understanding why many traditional investors don't understand gold particularly well. But anyway, I was talking about the three main characteristics of Bitcoin. It is this store of value, uh, and despite the fact that Bitcoin itself is even more volatile than gold, it does store value over long periods of time. So it has solved this digital scarcity problem. Second, it is a digital payments network because it is on the internet. It is truly borderless. I can send money you know, to you in South Africa. I can send somebody to somebody and send money to somebody in China today. It is this uh, borderless uh, payments technology, which is pretty incredible if you think about it. If I want to send money to you in South Africa via the banks, you have to go through all these intermediaries, pay money and wait time for that to be executed. It's a, sometimes you need to get even, you know, a, approval. And I was trying to get, um, you know, Bloomberg paid for uh, the other day. And it was, you know, I, I was cut off from Bloomberg because Saab needed to approve the payment 
this is <laughs> it's pretty incredible. But anyway, so Bitcoin is a digital payments network, which is pretty powerful. People can now transact borderless. One of the initial use cases for Bitcoin was uh, to send remittances uh, across borders um, at much quicker and cheaper uh, rates. Uh, and then the third one is, once again, a little bit more conceptual, but I think is an important framework is it because Bitcoin is a store of value and because it is a payments network and it doesn't rely on intermediaries, it is like an independent system of property rights itself. Uh, it doesn't, you don't, you don't need to go to uh, a, a, a judicial system to adjudicate on who owns what on the Bitcoin network. Bitcoin network tells you who owns what on that network. Uh, and so it is its own ecosystem uh, that is developing entirely. I mean, of course, it is related to the traditional financial system because capital flows in from the out outside, but it doesn't rely on the external financial system whatsoever. It is its own independent system. So that is kind of, I guess, the three uh, principal uh, ways to think of, of Bitcoin. All right, Rob. Well, one of the things that I've observed about Bitcoin is that many people are taking a buy and hold strategy. They're kind of long on Bitcoin. Uh, so they're definitely seeing the store of value. But the actual transactions as far as my reading can tell, are actually the volumes are quite low, uh, that the, the transaction speeds are often quite slow. Um, and because most people are taking a longer term view on Bitcoin, it's not actually being used for day-to-day -day transactions. Yeah, great, great point, uh, David. So this gets, I guess, into the you know, understanding of what uh, you know, Bitcoin is uh, trying to achieve. So you know, to create a, um, a, a completely independent uh, store of value, uh, it, it requires the, um, the technology to be very uh, sound and uh, to, to uh, run, you know, particularly um, effectively for long periods of time and for the principles to be well guarded. And so the you know, the principles of Bitcoin being decentralized and having a very uh, clear constraint on the supply are, are more important than the actual uh, transaction fees. And, um, you know, what the Bitcoin community has uh, decided over time is to elevate those, those relative to transaction fees because those are more important. Like there are ways to transact on Bitcoin at cheaper fees by using second layer solutions. And some of those aren't all as um, you know, perfect as we'd like them to be yet, but there are ways that one can transact on the second layer at cheaper cost. As an example, you know, if we're on the same exchange, we can transact with each other at cheaper costs or if we uh, use uh, different technologies like Lightning, as an example, that is a second layer solution that allows us to transact at cheaper costs. So uh, don't get me wrong, I, th those uh, technologies have room for improvement in how to find ways to transact at cheaper costs, but there are ways to do it. On the base layer, the choice has been to prioritize decentralization and uh, you know, affirmation of the constrained supply. Because if one starts to kind of compromise on those to get cheaper transaction fees, uh, that might risk the whole project altogether. And there's a you know, great history that one can read up on if you're interested in the, the kind of the block wars uh, debate um, you know, where there was a big friction in the community because some people wanted to focus on more on payments, which is a logical argument to make. They said, listen, Bitcoin needs to be digital cash. We need to be able to transact at cheap costs. Um, and they wanted to increase the block size of, of the, you know, the blocks that are processed every 10 minutes. Uh, but as I said, there were risks to centralization there were risks to the um 
what, what the, the impact might be for the future monetary policy. And so the, the, there's a trade-off there. And so hopefully you can understand that um, yeah, the trade-off implies that at the moment the community has decided that the, you know, to prioritize the, uh, the, the scarcity of the network and the decentralization and create uh, cheaper transaction fees on other layers. And, and it's, I guess, last point to note here is that, I mean, Bitcoin is still incredibly useful, even though transaction fees aren't as cheap as you might like it to be. It depends what you're using it for, right? If you're using it for high value transactions, well, then you don't really, you're not too concerned about the uh, about about the costs, and if we're envisaging potentially, and we might you know get onto the you know where where to for Bitcoin in the future, but if you're in, in envisioning the potential that Bitcoin can actually become the center of a new financial system, then you know you're not going to be using that technology to buy a cup of coffee. Um, you'll be using other technologies, and if you even related to the world that we live in today, you know the technologies that we have for buying a cup of cup of coffee already pretty good uh, you know credit cards and debit cards and in, in america venmo and zappo and all these technologies they're pretty good for cheap payments the problem that we have with our payments uh, technologies is more actually the scarcity and so you can understand then why the community has prioritized scarcity and decentralization over cost of transaction fees so i've heard some commentators say that uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin today is sort of like how the internet was back in the early to mid 1990s. That it's this new technology, uh, but the kind of second generation technology that developed on top of that was really how the value of the internet was unlocked and that there's a, a parallel to Bitcoin today um, that you might get these uh, additional protocols that might be bolted on to, uh, to how we trade or how we do daily transactions. Uh, but that it's more important to focus on the underlying foundation of, of, of money and the scarcity aspect that you mentioned. Um, so one of the things I'd like to just pick up on is the volatility of, of Bitcoin. And uh, we are recording on the 13th of May, and uh, Elon Musk has just uh, uh, you know, announced that Tesla will no longer accept Bitcoin payments uh, for their motor vehicles. Uh, reversing a, an earlier decision that, that he announced. Um, and the price has now plummeted. And, you know, this just seems every week that there's some uh, kind of spike or dip. And it's quite bemusing to, to look at this market and think, well, you know, is this what the future is going to look like in, in this brave new Bitcoin world? So, so what are your, your comments on the volatility aspect? Is that is that just a a short-term thing, or do you think that that might even out, or do you think that that will just be a permanent feature of of the Bitcoin uh, market? Yeah, I mean, maybe just also a quick one on on Elon Musk. I, th I think Elon Musk is a good uh, example of why, you know, it's not good to hero worship. You know, Elon Musk is obviously a, a smart guy with uh, lots of interesting visions of the future and is a hero to many people, but um, he says all sorts of uh, different things, and he can change his mind about things from week to week. He also has been promoting a. Uh, you know, a, a coin like uh, Dogecoin, which originally was created as a, as a joke. So, you know, I don't uh, say, take what he says uh, with, uh, with too much uh, importance. But yeah, coming down to the volatility question is, a, is an important one. Um, and there's a lot uh, that can uh, be said. Uh, the first important point to note is that you're merely seeing volatility on the price. The actual technology is not changing at all it is very stable. Bitcoin's principles don't change at all. There will only be 21 million. There are blocks mined every 10 minutes. The network reaches consensus on the position of the network. Uh, so it is actually a, a very stable, uh, non-volatile technology itself. What is volatile is our interpretation of the technology and how we price that technology. And it very much brings in the human element. And one you know, idea that I like to offer to people to think through this is that, I mean, the, the process of Bitcoin adoption or monetization or whatever word that you want to use 
is a psychological process. Because as I've said, the technology is not changing. The principles are intact. It's about how we digest those principles and say whether this has value to us or not. And as I mean, obviously, humans are very prone to uh, different ideas. We've, we've a very volatile, we can have very volatile emotions uh, and understandings of something. And it's, it's, it's not a particularly easy uh, technology to uh, wrap your head around. There's all sorts of uh, you know, fields that one needs to get a grapple on from, from economics to, um, to computer science, uh, to politics, and then to even trading, because I mean, I guess you know, what you're talking about is on the price get comes down to the comes down to the trading. So anyway, but there's all these different fields uh, to wrap one's heads around this technology, and it particularly uh, stumps many traditional financial people because their, their traditional valuation metrics, which are often very accountancy based, you know, uh, traditional investors approach financial markets and say, okay, well, what's the growth? What's the yield? What dividends am I going to get? And these are, I mean, these are powerful frameworks. I'm not poo-pooing them. These are these are valuable frameworks, but they don't work in the Bitcoin realm. Bitcoin doesn't have a, a yield. It doesn't, you know, you can't uh, see what the earnings growth is and what dividends are going to be paid out. It is a constrained supply asset. As I said, it's got the similarities to gold. And many traditional financial investors also don't understand uh, gold particularly well. But anyway, the point that I'm just making it is it's difficult to understand and it's difficult to value. <laughs> so that is a challenge for people. And then combined to that, we are living in the most unprecedented time from a monetary perspective with uh, zero interest rates, massive amounts of debts, quantitative easing, uh, your stimulus checks from the US government on a quarterly basis. This money is being you know, thrown into the financial system and volatility is high in traditional financial markets uh, generally. If you look at the VIX index, the US equity market index, if you look at the volatility of Tesla, you, there is a lot of volatility out there. So, I mean, yes, uh, Bitcoin is volatile, but as I said, it's mostly our kind of interaction with it. And it is in the context of this very volatile financial world. And I mean, I guess maybe just an additional point to make here is maybe two additional points to make here. This, this is a very powerful technology that is monetizing from like zero, zero worth in 2009 to $13 billion in about 20, uh, 2013 in terms of market cap to $240 billion uh, four years later to now 1.1 trillion. So, I mean, what did, did you expect that to happen in a straight line? I mean, no, there's, there's gonna, it's going to be a lot of volatility as one uh, grapples with a technology that potentially could, you know, uh, change the world. And then I guess that, that last point that I just wanted to note is that if you look at the volatility of Bitcoin relative to technology startups, like something like, you know, Amazon, you know, 10, 20 years ago, or Apple or Google, these stocks were very uh, volatile uh, in their early years uh, because they were powerful technologies that people were grappling with, trying to get their heads around. You know, when Amazon uh, or any of these companies started, similarly, you know, to your point about new technologies, there are lots of doubters. This thing has no value. Uh, who's going to use this? Uh, you know, when the internet came out, people said, who's going to use... Uh, letters over the telephone i mean that sounds like a ridiculous idea so who's going to use this magic internet money i mean that who why do we need that uh, but, but over time we grapple these ideas and of course there's still lots of doubters out there there's plenty of doubters out there uh, but over time people start to understand the technology um but yeah the all these different concepts uh, lead to a very uh, volatile interaction with a very powerful technology. I, I, what I would just encourage listeners to do is to guess, understand these concepts, but also pull back the lens and say, okay, well, I mean, over long periods of time, it is going up. Uh, it's going up by astronomical amounts and not because I'm trying to give a, a sales pitch in terms of your buying, but just in terms of the power of the technology. Uh, I mean, I've, I've stated to you the numbers of how the market cap is, has grown. Uh, you know, that, that is far more important than the volatility that's taking place below the surface. So Rob, where to from here? And I think what's fascinating to me are the political economy aspects of this discussion. So 
uh, countries with fragile economic systems that might be able to pivot towards a digital currency like Bitcoin. Uh, and naturally, governments around the world have not ignored this new trend. And there are some regulatory concerns, some government actions that are maybe pushing back against the adoption of, of these currencies. What are your thoughts on, on government's role in all of this? Yeah, the thinking through the, the government role regulation is absolutely fascinating because it really incorporates a lot of uh, a lot of game theory. Um, so there's a number of different things that can be said. I think, I mean, the first point to note is that this is a you know, technology on the internet. So it is very difficult to ban it. It's not, not impossible, but it is very difficult. Like it's very difficult to ban the internet. Um, you know, what are you going to shut, shut off the internet? That's not very uh, likely. Um, so, I mean, the way that I, the, the phrase that I like to use is you, you can't really uh, ban Bitcoin. You can only ban yourself from Bitcoin. Like if you were to actually institute a ban, Bitcoin still exists on the internet and continues to uh, run. So, um, uh, you know, it, and, and at the extreme, you know, governments, of course, could ban it. But look at the success that, you know, a country like China has tried to ban, you know, Facebook before. People just access it via, um, you know, via VPNs. So, uh, I mean, historically, we know that government bans on things don't work particularly well anywhere, even in the traditional world. I mean, in the government, in the past, you know, the US government has tried to ban alcohol during the prohibition and that didn't work particularly well. We have a longstanding ban on, uh, on drugs, the war on drugs globally and these assets, uh, sorry, I mean, these, these, uh, these, uh, these substances are, are still used. So it's very difficult to, to ban things. Um, it's certainly very difficult to ban a digital asset uh, that people can access via VPN. In the US, it's even, uh, you know, it's, it's possible that Bitcoin is protected as code under the First Amendment as, as free speech. So it might actually even be impossible in a place like uh, the US to execute a ban. Um, but that being said, once again, let's, let's take the case the next step. Well, it doesn't mean that the governments, I'm not saying the governments can't do anything. Uh, that, that's, that's not true. Governments can obviously do things. So what could they do? Well, they could try and kind of ban exchanges or they could, you know, implement more stringent regulations in their country to try and slow down adoption and make make usage of the technology um, more difficult. But one has to ask the question: So why would they do that? And what would the consequences be of doing that? Uh, you know, in the U.S., if the government were to come out and you know ban the big exchanges like Coinbase and Gemini, you know, what would that happen for? What would that what would the impact be on innovation? Uh, what would the impact be on jobs of those people? And would the government want to pass would, would pass up this technology and say to everybody else in the world, okay, well, you use this technology, but we're not going to use it over here. You know, in South Africa, once again, they also these companies that have you know jobs in South Africa, Luna and Valar, these are very uh, reputable uh, country uh, companies that are running. So, you know, it's it's. Uh, and, and you see this in action. There's some great speeches from, you know, U.S. lawmakers. Um, you know, Hester Pierce is a good one to look into. She's the commissioner of the Securities Exchange in America, so a very reputable uh, individual. And she's based, she said it would be foolish for governments to ban Bitcoin because it's just not really uh, practical. So, you know, what you end up seeing is that the freedom-loving countries, they just kind of let it, the, the technology run to see what happens. And then at some point they see a lot of activity and they say to themselves, okay, well, well, certainly at least SARS and the IRS in the U S they say to themselves, okay, well, <laughs> there's a lot going on here. How do we get our tax revenue, please? Um, and that implicitly starts to create more legitimacy, right? Because if you ban something, you can't really tax it. Uh, and at the other end of the extreme, you do see some countries coming out with more negative regulation. So as an example, you know, Nigeria has tried to stop Nigerians from uh, withdrawing from their cryptocurrency exchanges to their bank accounts. Um, 
and in Turkey, the government tried to stop merchants from accepting uh, cryptocurrencies for payments. But in those countries, the people already understand the value of this te these technologies. They've already experienced the negative consequence of a weakening currency, you know, the Naira in Nigeria, the Turkish Lira in Turkey, weakening currency over many years due to bad economic policy. So when those governments implemented those more negative regulations on Bitcoin, what happened is that there was more activity in Bitcoin. So the people just basically not completely ignored what the government said, but it certainly didn't detract them from using it. In Nigeria, local Bitcoin activity went through the roof. Local Bitcoin is peer-to-peer -peer activity in Bitcoin. And, and in Turkey, uh, they were still allowed to use the exchanges. So people started buying more Bitcoin. So I use the, the phrase that if you think your government is going to ban Bitcoin, then you need it more than you think. Because by the time your government has come to a point to ban a technology, which is a freedom-loving technology, there's nothing nefarious about this technology. If you get to that point, then you, you have more things to be worried about than you know, the idea that government is, is, has banned the thing that you hold. In fact, you'd probably want more of that thing that you hold. Uh, you know, than, than you already do. Um, so there's a lot of game theory uh, to think through here. And basically you're seeing the world in a sense, I guess, split into these two parts where um, a lot of, lot of countries just kind of let the technology progress and then start taxing it. And so it implicitly legitimizes it. And the more authoritarian leaning uh, who are grappling with trying to ban, but it not being effective whatsoever. So, Rob, none of us know the future, but we can certainly try to position ourselves for the future and study very closely the trends that are developing in front of us. But as a final thought from you, how do you see the evolution of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies developing into the future and how might our financial systems be changed by it? Yeah, as you said, I mean, I am I, no Nostradamus, so I'm not going to say that I know exactly what the future holds, but I think there's a few key insights to share here. And the first one is that, you know, Bitcoin is potentially equivalent to previous technological revolutions of the past. And hopefully, you know, this conversation provides that context for you that we've obviously gone through the technology itself but also the context of the world that we live in that is very unsound. This is a problem. It is the problem, the way that I see it. I mean, unsound money is the challenge of our lifetime, certainly the next five to 10 years. Numerous of the consequences that we are living with in society are actually impacted by this central monetary problem that we are faced with. And now we are faced with a technology that could potentially solve that. Now, listen, of course, there are risks. I'm not saying that they're not risks. But hopefully you can see the clash of a problem and exciting technology. And so draw, pulling back the lens once again to previous technological revolutions, you know, like the internet, which has changed society in ways that we couldn't imagine when it first started, or things like the steam engine, the, the spinning wheel, the printing press, these technologies fundamentally changed society and we couldn't imagine it all the impact at, as, at the start. Like as an example, the, the steam engine was invented to enhance productivity in factories. It ended up seeing transportation of goods over long distances, and then eventually humans leading to mass migration of society. So, I mean, people, of course, did not predict that on, on day one and how that changed society is, is quite dramatic. So we don't know exactly what the consequence is going to be of this technology, but I do posit that it will be profound. Uh, Bitcoin and the rest of the ecosystem is creating a new financial infrastructure, uh, and this will change you know, people's lives in quite profound ways. And you know, what I do know for certain is that the, you know, the, the people, the families, the communities, the businesses, the societies, the cities, the countries that adopt this technology, and, and I would say it's even more than just kind of Bitcoin, it is the principles of sound money. When people adopt those principles, they feel the positive benefits 
from being less consumption focused, being more savings focused, uh, being more long-term focused. We live in a world that is highly consumption driven, short-term focused, where people aren't planning for the future. We're spending like all our time just rushing around in the short term. Well, I do see these impacts. And you, you speak to people who have adopted a sound money, I believe, believe me, their uh, actions start to change where they start to, when, when, your, when your primary asset is an asset that's going up in value, you don't want uh, to spend frivolously. You want to save and invest for the future because there's a more uh, positive future when that asset could go up in the future. So um, that just get, kind of gives you the, a personal example. And then maybe one uh, you know, practical example is if you think about the, the specifics of how this technology is changing, people are now using Bitcoin as a, as a primary collateral in their financial uh, transactions. And this is a you know, very exciting concept, something that I've been speaking to my friend uh, Chris Becker about, who I, I know you also know. Um, you know this is a, a very interesting change that can develop uh, in, in the future, because at the moment in our uh, current financial system, you know, we use um, property largely as our collateral to get, um, you know, business loans and to get loans for new uh, property transactions. And, you know, we can envisage a world here where, you know, where, where if your money manages to hold value over long periods of time, you might no longer be using those assets as collateral. You might actually be using your, your money as the primary uh, collateral. And so that can completely change the, the way the financial infrastructure is set up. And as I, said, I don't, can't think through every last uh, way that that is going to find expression, but hopefully just thinking through that example can help you realize that the world can change in quite profound ways over the coming uh, years. So as I've said, I think that, you know, people who adopt the technology will feel those benefits and they will uh, be more uh, prepared to handle the volatility that I think will kind of continue to ensue in the world around us. Well, Rob, thank you very much. And I think on your website, soundmoneymacro.com, you document these very exciting changes and it is uh, at the same time a rather daunting time uh, to be looking at and observing our monetary system and I certainly hope that uh, some of the technological opportunities and changes that you've described certainly come to fruition. Thank you very much for joining me on Solutions with David Ansara. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, where else can people go to find your work and to, to learn more about the things that you're interested in? Yeah, so Twitter and my website are the two uh, um, main places. On Twitter, I am uh, sound underscore money. And then, yeah, my website, soundmoneymacro.com. You'll find my uh, contact details and email address there. Rob Price, thank you very much. Thanks, David.